0: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Shekelian and I'm joined by my colleagues Alva Ray, Patrick Maguire and Stephen Bush to discuss Boris Johnson's return to work and what it means for the lockdown. And you ask us, what are you doing with your weekends and how are you making them different from your week?
1: So Boris Johnson is back at work from convalescence and obviously the significant thing about that is that For a long time, well, I say for a long time, I realise probably it's not that. In this new weird world where none of us can keep track of of what day of the week it is, for a large chunk of the period that Boris Johnson was first in hospital and was then convalescing, the Cabinet and the Parliamentary Party as a whole have been split on whether slash how to move forward, whether to end the lockdown, whether to kind of continue as is, whether to kind of do the kind of what a Harvard University paper that's been very well summarised actually in a Conservative home piece by Bernard Jenkin, transition and mobilise to sort of move to a new, OK, well, lockdown is going to be with us for the foreseeable. How do you make the economy and society function? And kind of Boris Johnson's return to health and to work, you know, was slash is a crucial moment because obviously as Prime Minister, his role in this situation falls to be the kind of referee and ultimate decider. And so he has returned with a sort of brief statement outside Downing Street before cracking on with that. With Did anyone else watch it? Has anyone else seen it since?
0: Yeah, I saw it. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, if you look at the front pages this morning, you get a whole range of, of different ways that Boris Johnson is set to approach this lockdown dilemma. So the Telegraph front page was saying that the, the headline was Johnson to ease the lockdown this week. And the meat of the story was that he was going to announce, you know, plans of how to ease it this week, which is obviously a different thing. And actually, in his statement outside number 10, he he did say that that we'll find out more in the coming days, and that he'll show us more of his working out, I think is how he put it. So you know, there could very, very well be a little bit more detail about the different scenarios the government is planning in the same way as Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford sort of did recently in recent days without saying we're going to do it anytime soon. I think there's there's this bit of a lack of clarity in reporting about those who want to end the lockdown when actually most of those people turn out to be people who want the government to give us some idea of how they're planning to do it rather than trying to accelerate it. So I think those two things are different things. One is a transparency issue and one is certain Conservative MPs and, and the former Chancellor Philip Hammond who have said we've got to try and do this as soon as possible. We don't have time to wait for a vaccine etc. I think that was interesting to see that he didn't really validate many of the reports that have come out this morning because he did say we're still in a moment of maximum risk and we're at the peak and didn't suggest that there would be any loosening of the restrictions anytime soon. But he also made a few references to one by one, firing up the engines of the economy and, and, and also saying that there would be more of more of a show of the government's plans in, in coming days. And obviously, Boris Johnson is one of those politicians where you can read into his political sort of makeup what you will. Obviously, as we've spoken about on this podcast before, there is no binary. You know, you can't choose one position and save the economy at the expense of the nation's health. Or the other way around, because the two things are completely linked. Even the simple fact of the lockdown is not particularly good for for anyone's health, anyway, because because of the lack of people accessing the healthcare they would have done otherwise. So that's just one example. And if you try and save the economy instead of pe- people's health, then you know you do you do the same thing the other way around. And we've already seen sort of the exposure of health inequalities of this whole thing. So. I think that's going to be an important thing to try and communicate that it's not really a binary choice.
2: Yeah, I think I feel a little bit, well, no thinking about it. I'm slightly confused as to where we stand after this morning's different newspaper reports and Boris Johnson's statement in that I'm not really expecting that it'd be a lift to lockdown anytime soon. But am I still correct in thinking that there will be like tweaks and some easing of the lockdown in maybe even small ways to be announced at some point next week?
1: Well, because my interpretation of his remarks was the, the significant thing was him saying the important thing is to avoid a second peak. And I think if if you're saying that, because the difficulty we had right with the five tests before is we knew that they pointed to a very long lockdown, but we also knew that that was partly because the government needed a form of words which allowed it to go. We have these tests, and when the prime minister gets back, we will have a we'll have a row among ourselves. I think the the thing is right is the only way that you can meet the fifth test about the peak, which he kind of reiterated in his remarks today, is you wait for a vaccine, essentially, right? you're living a lot like this for some time. So I therefore kind of assume that there probably won't be significant tweaks to it. That's partly because my heuristic throughout this has kind of been that France is a better guide to where we'll be in two weeks time than like someone in government passed through a newspaper front page, which, and it may even not be as direct a relationship as that. Mm. I guess the flip side of that, though, is that it feels like there's more everyday, more and more evidence of about, you know, one way or the other about the impact, about how, whether or not children are vectors of transmission, which, of course, if they're not, then you can see how, say, primary schools could reopen.
2: Graham Brady was on Westminster R last night, I think, talking about Lots of people on the 1922 committee want lockdown to be lifted. But the examples he gave suggested to me more of a desire to tweak the existing lockdown rather than to to lift it. You know, the example he gave was he thinks, you know, it's sort of ludicrous that flower stalls in his community and, and like at marketplaces are shut. But you can still buy flowers in supermarkets and that where it's a huge discrepancy across that industry and it's just interesting because I feel like the way the discussion has been foregrounded in various newspapers I'm now expecting a few tweaks even if as you say Stephen unless we suddenly massively increase the capacity to test and trace or we come up with a vaccine we can't like meaningfully change the way we're living at the moment without the risk of a second peak which means that we're we're not gonna do that. But I just wonder on the tweaks and so on whether that will happen. Because I think that could make a big psychological difference to how people are feeling about this if, you know, a few more places do take away and flower stalls are are running again.
3: Yeah, and also we we don't know what the government's criteria for judging the risk of a second peak is, or are rather. So obviously that's uh emphasising that test is one thing, but knowing what the test is 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 quite another and also then an interesting part and a significant part of Johnson's statement this morning was talking about building a consensus and you know the the gestures towards transparency and more consensual working across the commons it's clear that you know as much as there is a lot of emphasis in the in what you might call the tory press about divisions within the cabinet about hawks and doves whatever it's clear that if the Prime Minister makes good on those words, and it, and indeed if building consensus extends, not just across Westminster but beyond it, if the demand for, or rather the supposed desire for a, a four-nation strategy is, is to be borne out, then Boris Johnson isn't going to be the sole author of what comes next. We have to look to Keir Starmer, to Nicola Sturgeon, to... To Mark Drakeford, to Arlene and Michelle, and you know, perhaps even to Andy Stephen, and the other Andy. So, who knows?
0: Yeah, I've, I've got to say, I really agree with you about the. We don't know what how we're testing the government's suggestion of wanting to avoid a, a second peak because there's there's still a lot of questions about the data that's actually available that need to be answered before they can decide to do anything else. I think on on the lockdown, for example. Dominic Raab over the weekend was saying that deaths in, in care homes were falling in line with, with hospital deaths of COVID. And, and you had Stephen Powers from NHS England over the weekend saying that there's a definite trend in reduced number of people in hospitals. But they haven't produced that evidence about the care home deaths. And I'm not really sure why. They obviously don't. They obviously don't have it. And if they don't know the number of deaths in the community and whether that is really falling down in line with the way that hospital death rates are falling, then how can they decide to do anything else? You know, if in the community, the disease spread is much more dangerous than in hospital where it can be contained. So I find that really worrying, as well as the fact that they don't also seem to have the figures of the number of care workers who have died, whereas they do for NHS workers, which is also something that, you know, Dominic Rubb was unable to produce at PMQs next week and Keir Starmer said he was putting the government on notice for that information. When you have these data gaps, similarly with the sort of disproportionate number of BAME deaths as well, I don't know how you can really ever provide any evidence that we're in that position to meet the five tests to start doing anything different or we're in any position to tweak a certain part of social distancing in order to free up one area of business or schools or or other parts of society and i think until they can answer those those really stubborn questions that have sort of dogged the government response to the pandemic so far then i can't really trust in like you say these hints in newspapers that they're going to do this that and the other
2: and that stat on care home deaths falling, I think it's basically unlikely to be true. Going off your report initially you did with George Grails and Niku last week, but also on, I looked into the ONS's death statistics that have been coming out. For me, the, the takeaway from it was that there's still basically, I think, a huge reluctance in care homes to certify deaths as coronavirus deaths like the non-mortality death rate is still thousands above what it would normally be. And some of those are definitely coronavirus deaths. And like the ONS has given guidance that people in care homes, like it shouldn't be an issue that you can't test people for coronavirus because doctors are allowed to certify coronavirus as a cause of death going on symptoms alone so if there's been a coronavirus outbreak in a care home you should still be able to identify it that way and the lack of tests isn't preventing that but this like huge discrepancy in the numbers just clearly points to a big reluctance to identify those that way and if at the moment we're not certifying deaths in care homes properly I think there's like absolutely no way that you could know that the death rate
0: was falling Exactly. Yeah. And when you look at the reports from across Europe about deaths in care homes, that is such a significant part of the life lost and the damage caused by the virus. So you can classify it any way you want. You can write what you like on people's death certificates. If you haven't stamped it out in the community and in care homes, then then you're nowhere near being able to to start easing measures.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: And now's the time for a section we like to call...
1: You, you ask, ask us.
0: us. And this week we've had a lot of questions from, from people that were sort of smooshing into one, which is what are you doing at the weekends? So how are you differentiating your weekends from your weekdays? Stephen, what are you doing?
1: So there are sort of two key things that I'm doing that differentiate my weekends from my weekdays. The, the first is that we can only watch films on weekends. We might watch like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or whatever on like a weekday. But the only day that we're allowed to have a film on is our Friday, Saturdays and Sunday evenings, mm, nice. which does like it mean you have like a thing where you're like, okay, so I'm actively looking forward to, to to picking that. And I think the good thing that we've finally started to crack is at first we were basically like whoever's turn it was to pick would do a short list. Or we were both doing a lot of kind of like, what is a what is a film choice and is not categorically the other one is not gonna to turn to us at the end and go, that was terrible. Why did you pick that? <laughs> Which meant and obviously <laughs> I, I love a Marvel movie as much as the next cinema goer, but we were very much falling into that kind of like groove of sort of like Ladybird, Book Smart, a Marvel film, like that kind of sort of like things that there was no way either of us were gonna to object to. We've become slightly better at actually one of us picking something we really want to watch so this week we watched knives out for the first time which we both enjoyed very much we watched this is england which uh, i hadn't seen oh, i love
0: this is england
1: it's so good yeah i yeah, really it's enjoyed so good, it. Yeah. it it does a remarkable job of being incredibly tense and unpleasant despite the fact that up until very near the end very little actually happens mm. but yeah it's it's really it's really really good and the other thing that I'm doing is I'm sort of trying to like do a so I don't have a slow cooker but I'm trying to do a kind of like cooking something over multiple hours over one day of the weekend because obviously it's a thing that I well I was actually thing I couldn't do in a weekday which is actually not really true is it because I could go into the kitchen anytime I like but just because it (laughs) gives some kind of like slightly different structure.
2: You have to maintain the illusion that you couldn't do that.
0: (laughs) Alpha what are you up to? Are you still there? still doing your book club
2: yeah book club has been very intense though I think the one book a week kind of caught up with us and last week no one had read it <laughs> which is the first week I hadn't <laughs> finished the book but literally no one had in terms of differentiating weekdays from the weekend it's been a long-held principle of of mine that you should make your weekend breakfast very different and a real treat compared with during the week I don't know if anyone else does that
0: yeah we do that yeah yeah um, so
2: Yeah I think it's very important even in normal times so during the week I would just have toast and a cup of tea and a banana and then at weekends you have to have pan of chocolat and if my partner forgets to buy them or if I forget them it's bad news and then I sort of then sometimes I quite like having a sort of brunch with eggs and things. I also really like getting physical papers at the weekend. I obviously read them online during the week but I only buy a a hard copy of the papers at the weekend and I really highly recommend the Saturday Guardian which I think is the best of all the weekend papers and the review Ooh, section
0: is really I good I disagree I disagree I'm a Saturday Times girl. You're you've a Saturday got to get that Time. big, big crossword. yeah
2: Saturday Guardian and Sunday Times is the way to do
0: it
3: no the, the best the best newspaper <laughs> on sale any day of the week is um the FT Weekend.
0: Oh, yeah, that's good. That is good.
3: Absolutely Peerless, the magazine, Life and Arts, Home and Garden, and indeed the news section. It's all absolutely fantastic. And that salmon paper is so easy on the eyes. Yeah, no, oh, no, it's salmon. I, um,
2: I don't think I could bear a physical copy of the FT. I mean, I, I really like reading their politics coverage, but there's just something about the FT. I couldn't, I couldn't stand that.
0: It's very oh, yeah. weighty. It's a lot to get through if you're just having some eggs on a, on a Saturday morning.
1: Oh no, I love the FT weekend. Don't tar it with the same
0: brush. I like it too. I
2: like it
3: too. You tar the I just FT feel with. like
2: it's for bankers and lawyers. It's not for me.
3: Not at the weekend though. There's a real sense of levity and mischief. You know. <laughs> Henry Mance's cheeky prose bouncing off the page. The late David Tang had a great column in there. The book reviews are excellent. The features in the magazine I always learn a lot from. The writing is the writing is great. The visuals striking. I love the F two weekend. I'm not on commission.
0: What's their crossword like, though? Because the, the reason why I love the t- Saturday Times is because of the giant crossword.
3: Uh, I've never never
1: checked. I don't. I'm not sure they have a crossword. I um, mm. buy it for life in Arts and um, the magazine. Mm. really. Well, I mean, obviously the the Weekend is the best one because I'm occasionally in it, and then after the Sunday Times because I'm occasionally in that one. Uh, the Saturday yeah. Guardian is a source of great pain to me now because whenever I pick up Feast the supplement, it's a bit like bumping into like. Your ex after they've broken up with you in like a supermarket or whatever, and it's just like, oh, how are you doing? And they're like, I'm still great. And you're like, oh god, this is so painful. You also can't basically just can't get the Guardian from a shop round here because unless you're like willing to get up at nine, like at the peak point it, <laughs> it's gone by by eleven o'clock here in here in Stoke Newington. So I, I I one of those things where I occasionally like see like a bit of it like floating in the street but I it's actually quite difficult to get a physical copy, even before like the age of
3: social distancing. Something <laughs> I've been meaning to do as an affectation is, for some reason, my local news agents here, I don't know whether it's because people from Cumbria retire here, although I don't understand how or why that would work. They sell copies of the Westmoreland Gazette, also the Sunday Post, which is um, DC Thompson's Scottish Sunday paper and I've always I've always wondered I might start, I've always wondered whether I should start taking one of those. It's the sort of thing I would have done when I was 15 to make myself look like some sort of worldly eccentric. Also, it reminds me of in the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s, because retiring from Bradford and the West Riding of Yorkshire to Morecambe was so common. Alan Bennett wrote a very moving play about this called Sunset Across the Bay, that the Bradford Telegraph and Argus had a special Morecambe edition. I don't know why I'm telling all of you this, but I just, you know, it's one of those little factoids that makes me wistful for a world I, I will never, never live in and never experience myself. In terms of what I'm doing at the weekend, which is what this segment is actually about, there is no way of differentiating my free time from work because I spend regular listeners will recall or maybe won't you're not obliged to listen to anything I say, and frankly I wouldn't recommend it, that I am at the moment writing a book about the Labour Party from 2017 to 2020 with my friend and colleague Gabriel Pogrom from the Sunday Times. So when I clock off the NS for the day, I stay sat at my desk, missing deadlines and feeling inadequate. Uh, the weekends I do the same, except I get up a little bit later, and uh, maybe at the weekend... I take my daily exercise, whereas before I was doing the very edifying thing of riding my bike to historical sites um, around Southport. Now, basically, if I get bored or restless, I ride my bike to a nearby spa and buy a dime bar or some Haribo and often a a big bottle of Iron Brew Extra, which is Iron Brew's equivalent of Pepsi Max, Mm -hmm. as in zero sugar, extra taste. And the extra is spelt without an E, so you know they're they're serious about that. But yeah, so that's my free time. And as you can can hear, it's um, driving me uh, slightly mad.
2: How has um, researching the book changed, Patrick? Obviously, you can't meet people in person.
3: It's interesting. Because everybody is just sort of stuck at home, you can still interview people via Zoom, and you can still build up a modicum of a rapport with someone. Although, you know, it doesn't feel quite as... I guess, quite as glamorous if, you know, your high octane discussions are interrupted with, sorry, you you cut out a bit there. You're lagging a bit. Hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? You know, you know, <laughs> you're not quite Woodward. It's not quite
1: Woodward and Bernstein, put it that way. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I don't know about anyone else, but I think the thing I'm finding most difficult day to day about kind of just speaking to people is the, the way that almost all distant communications removes, you lose so much social grease as it were. Because you immediately have this sense of, oh, I'm on the clock. So the kind of like, how are you? What's going on? What shall we order? All of that kind of stuff, which just eases people into the pattern of of, of speech, really. It's so much harder.
0: That's always like the the nicest way of doing interviews or, or just meeting someone for a chat. Is like they'll tell you what they've just been doing and who with and oh this person was being a pain or like you know this is going to be a big thing in the coming month and you know you you lose that those bookends of conversations that are often sometimes the most enlightening with politicians at least and then also when you're interviewing people you know on the front line or patients or or people who are treating patients and care workers and and other other people who are actually dealing first hand with the virus. It's really hard to do it over the phone because often the stories are so sensitive. People are exhausted. Lots of people say they feel like they're not being listened to or they're being patronised. So it's really difficult to have those conversations without doing those same things. And I find that usually face to face, you can build that trust and kind of adjust your face so that you you know, so that you can sort of like make sure that the person knows that, that you're listening and that, that you're sympathising with what they're saying. So that, that's one of the things that I found particularly hard. And in terms of my weekends, I've not really been doing anything particularly exciting or cultured. But the films that, Alva, you mentioned last time that you were watching Cinema Paradiso and and other classic films, we watched The Shining at the weekend, which which I'd never seen. That was sufficiently terrifying to prove to me that I don't really need to watch any, any more classic horror films. I'm fine now that I know what that one's like. And on the other end of the spectrum, I've been doing some gardening so we've actually managed to grow some figs in this amazing weather they're not right oh, yeah. but it's still really exciting and we and we also have one olive on our olive tree as well which is sort of the size of a marble but is also exciting so it's very Mediterranean around here
3: a single olive
0: yeah a single olive it's kind of biblical <laughs>
3: <laughs> you couldn't possibly pick you can't pick it otherwise you'll you know invite some sort of You'll invite a second one You pick it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that. Although you know, was there another olive that you attempted to pick, and is that why we're here? Now?
0: Maybe that's that's what brought all this
3: on.
2: That definitely means something. Single olive, gosh, that's trying to tell you something. In English, <laughs> I'll take it, I'll a picture of
0: I'll show you. <laughs> it doesn't look like a very juicy one, so I'm fine not picking it, even for um, just you know, culinary purposes and we've also bought a couple of there's this there's this corner shop that's selling these tiny little sort of plastic cups with little plants in them that they claim are green chili and cherry tomato plants so i've bought some of these but i have no idea if i've just bought like upsold weeds (laughs) like the proof will be in the growing so i'm nurturing those but i'm not holding out much hope You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast with me, Anisha Kellyan and my colleagues Stephen Bush, Patrick McGuire, and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.
2: Here's Johnny. <laughs>